We're in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 tonight. Um, since we took a summer break from that sermon series, we were looking at the Lord's Prayer and prayer in, in general in some respects. But now, um, returning to that prophet, page 795 in the Pew Bible, if you would like. Chapter 7 and 8. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now, the people of Bethel had sent Sharazer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, that's Zechariah, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I said, every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word, of the, Lord of, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and glad, gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. We're at the very center of Zechariah's prophecy, and there's a shift from what we are used to. If you can think back long, long, long ago to May, we were looking at the uh, first half of the book of Zechariah, which is made up of these night visions. He goes to sleep and he has these very vivid dreams that are uh, a means of revelation from God to him. Uh, the remainder of the book, beginning chapter 9, is filled with oracles, pronouncements, predictions, more like the general um, fare, what we're used to when we read prophetic literature. But right between those two main portions of the book, right in the middle, we have this historical narrative. Sometimes it's referred to as Zechariah's sermons. You notice every time it would say that the word of the Lord of hosts came to me and, and I said, it's sometimes considered like a little sermonette. If you take them all together as we've done tonight, though, it really is driving home one main 
one main point. Uh, that's right in the, the center of the book. And so uh, it's a general good rule of thumb when you're reading Hebrew literature that whatever the author decides to put right in the middle is really important. So this is really important. It gives us perhaps the heart of Zechariah's ministry as it's in the heart of this book. Um, this takes place two years after the night visions, chapter 7, the fourth year of King Darius. Um, and in these speeches, these sermons, Zechariah is speaking in response to a question that is raised from the people of God. And here is the main point of his sermon, and incidentally, my sermon tonight as well. Here it is. This is the main point. Empty religion must be replaced with real obedience which can only be energized by God's promises. Empty religion must be replaced with real obedience, which can only come uh, from the promises of God, which can only be energized by God's promises. So first, let's consider the danger of empty religion. That's where it starts. So again, let's think of the historical context. Verse 1 of chapter 7 it reminds us where we're at. We're in the fourth year of the reign of Darius. Not David, not Solomon, not Hezekiah, uh, not even a Jew, not an Israelite. Darius. We're reminded that this is the time of, of exile, of captivity. Um, Zechariah ministers during that period where now a portion of the people have been permitted to return to the land. And there uh, they can rebuild the city, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and uh, of importance for tonight's passage, the temple. So this is concurrent with Ezra and Nehemiah. As the temple is now nearing completion, the second temple, the residents of uh, the city Bethel send some delegates. We see that in verse 2. Shaurzer and Regum Melech uh, and their folks along with them, they send these representatives from Bethel to go ask a question of the priests. And their question is in verse 3. It's in the, the first person, should I, but the speaker is representative of the entire city of Bethel, maybe even probably, likely, the, the entire nation. This is the question. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? What's, what's this about? What's this question referring to? Well, ever since the, direct, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Israelites fasted on the fifth month, in the fifth month of the year, to commemorate, to remember that terrible, that horrific moment when um, the city was burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586. Uh, that took place in the fifth month of 586. Now, there's going to be three other fasts that are mentioned throughout this text. The fourth month, fifth month, seventh month, tenth month. All of those correspond to some devastating, heart-wrenching, grievous event in the life of Israel that occasioned their uh, reflection by means of a fast. But now, what prompts this question in verse 3 is that since the temple is nearly rebuilt, since it's nearly back uh, and up and running, should the people still observe a fast that commemorated its previous destruction? On the one hand, that question is very reasonable. Right. Why should we keep weeping and mourning if now we have reason to rejoice? Fair enough. But there's something about the way the question is framed 
which shows us that's not exactly what they're after here. What does the questioner say? Do I need to keep fasting as I have done for so many years? Do you hear that hint of exasperation? Can you sense how uh, the people are really done with this formality and they're just ready to get on to the next thing? We've put in our time. Are we good now? That's, that's the nature of this question. And Zechariah clears his throat. Verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to him. In verse 5, he speaks. And this is what he says. Was it really for me that you fasted? That's God's response to this question. Ouch, right? In that response, God reveals the true nature of of their question and the true character of their heart. They're not actually interested in worshiping God. Um, Whether it's through fasting or, or feasting, they just care about themselves. It goes on to say in verse 6, when you eat, when you drink, you do it for yourself, right? When you're hungry, you eat. You're not thinking about me. You're not thinking about anybody. You're just hungry, so you eat. God says in verse 5, though, that's the same thing that's happening when you fast. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for you, just like when you eat. When you don't eat, it's also for you. It's not as though they are genuinely mournful of the sin that brought them into exile. It's not that they want to devote all their attention, all their faculties, uh, singularly upon God, which should always be the point of fasting. No, they do it for themselves. And this is always the case of empty religiosity. There's no higher power. There's no greater good. It's all about how it makes that person feel. It's about, it's about meeting felt needs. We say, well, why would somebody voluntarily deprive themselves of food? That doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound like that would be meeting any sort of felt need. The felt need would be, I'm hungry, I want to eat. How could this be for themselves that they don't eat? Well, let's think about it. Sure, you might be hungry, but there's another part of you when fasting for these reasons that could feel pretty good, right? It would boost the sense of piety. It could silence certain guilty feelings. They could say, look how far we've come from our ancestors. They, they provoked the wrath of God, but look at, look at us. Every year, four times a year, we, we seek his face and we call upon him in mercy and we deprive ourselves of the delicacies of a good meal. Aren't we so much better than our parents and our grandparents? And God's saying, don't you dare play that game with me. Don't, don't you dare try to play that game with me. Don't, don't bring me into this scheme of yours. I never once asked you to institute these fasts, which is true. This is a, a tradition, which isn't to say it's, it's a bad tradition if it was observed properly, but it wasn't as though in the Mosaic law it was said that they needed to do this. No, they did it on their own, and God says, and I want you to keep it that way. It's not like it's for me. Don't say it's for me. You came up with this on your own, and you're doing it for your own reasons, for your own pleasure. That's empty religion. Have you ever felt the pull, the attractiveness of empty religion? Are you perhaps resting in the false security that going through the motions can afford you? 
Empty religion is more prevalent than you might at first realize. How can you know when to spot it? Because it's difficult, because on the outside, externally, empty religion and true religion are nearly identical. They'll look very identical. We're talking about motivation. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about a disposition of the character when we ask if we're caught in the trap of empty religion. So how can we know? How can we spot it? Well, here are just a few examples that compare the religiously empty and the religiously true. Take this, for example. The religiously empty come to church because it's the right thing to do. That is, their parents expect it or their friends respect it. The religiously true come to church because God is worthy of worship. The religiously empty uh, give uh, their tithes and offerings and their time and their resources because they like to quantify and to track how good they really are. Uh, The religiously true give because they recognize that everything they have is already God's in the first place and they wish they could give him even more in return of thanksgiving. Uh, The religiously empty, they grieve over sin. They do. They weep and they mourn over sin. But because of the consequences that it has, loss of freedom, perhaps, or physical hurt, or emotional hurt, or broken relationships, whereas the religiously true weep over sin because of the callous way it treats the Savior who died to keep us from that sin. The religiously empty will attend morning and evening worship, even if the preacher is going through a book like Zechariah, because they feel like, well, they've checked a box that frees them from obligations to Christ, to his church throughout the rest of the week. The religiously true come to worship morning and evening because they know they live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so I wonder if that's perhaps helped you to kind of articulate in your own mind what it means to be caught up in this empty religiosity, maybe some of the tendencies in your own life to hide behind formality instead of living by faithful obedience and submission to God. It is such a temptation. And then we want to ask this question, why is it so tempting? Why is it so tempting to give in to empty religion? And the reason is because it's easy. It's easy. Fasting is easy. Church attendance is easy. Uh, Giving is easy. Community service is easy. You name it. Bible studies. It's, It's all easy, really. At the very most, it might require a schedule change. But here's what it does not require, a heart change. And that's what God really wants. That's what he's actually after here. So Zechariah's message is synonymous with what we hear from Hosea, which is also repeated famously by Jesus to the Pharisees when he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings or Similarly, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what God wants from us. He doesn't want our acts of service or engagement in religious ritual. He wants our hearts, which will be most evident through real obedience. So, empty religion must be replaced 
with real obedience. What would that obedience look like? Well, let's take a look at the verses there in Zechariah chapter 7. This is what God wants from the people, beginning in verse 9. Several things are noted there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Four things are mentioned here. First, render true judgments or execute true judgment. Um, It's basically repeated, chapter 8, verse 16. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. God wants his people to be about justice. We as a church should be about justice, about doing the right thing and, and ensuring that the right thing is done. It's one of God's attributes. He's a just God. Maybe we could say, if you could put it this way, it's one of his premier attributes. One theologian says, the justice of God consists in giving each their worthy due, either by punishment or reward. That is, God doesn't tip the scales in life towards his favorites. All are treated fairly. God is just in his word, everything that he declares is true and right and equitable, but he's also just in his deeds, in that he governs the wor- world equitably and he renders to each according to their deeds. Uh, scripture um, attributes justice to God in countless places. One example, Psalm 9 The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Why has God, according to this imagery in the psalm, established his throne? Why has he set up his kingdom? To enact justice. That's how much he cares about justice. He rules in justice, and his people should too. Second, show kindness and mercy to one another. There's that Hebrew word hesed, uh, covenant love faithfulness. It's an Old Testament imperative here to show kindness and mercy to one another. We find it again in the New Testament with Paul, right? Uh, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. It's the word most often used to describe God's covenant relationship with his sinful people, that he is a God of kindness, of, of hesed. This is the beautiful combination of the gospel, isn't it? These first two things that God calls Israel to be for, justice and mercy. They seem like they should be in conflict, but we looked at the cross and we see they're not. We see justice and mercy kiss. They meet. Because at the cross, every sin, every sin got what it deserved. And every sinner got what they don't. If you look to Jesus Christ and the cross, you put your faith in him. Your sins are dealt with. That's justice. But you are forgiven. That's mercy. The third way to actively obey God, according to Zechariah, it's stated in the negative. Do not oppress the weak and the vulnerable. It's a call for advocacy. These people, groups, widows, orphans, aliens, they didn't have somebody to provide for them and their families. They were financially vulnerable. They also didn't have anybody to, to kind of stand up for them and to defend them in social situations. But God is for them. He stands up for their cause. 
And so his people should do the same. Finally, a fourth thing. All this comes together in that fourth exhortation. It's also in the negative. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Verse 17 of chapter 8 says the same thing. Do not devise evil in your heart against one another. The idea is that an Israelite should always seek his brother's welfare. They're bound together as part of a covenant community. After all, for that community to exist, they must treat one another justly. They must treat one another kindly. They must not favor one group over another. They must advocate for the cause of those less fortunate than themselves. And so when you put all these together, these four, these four commands, these four exhortations to do justice, to love kindness. Oh, that's starting to sound like another famous passage, right? To support the widows, the orphans, the aliens, to not devise evil. We're seeing that this is what God is all about. This is the heart of God. And so what God is actually saying to the people is, I want nothing less than that you live like me, that you love like me, that you look like me. Well, that's a tall order, isn't it? God's saying, forget sacrifices. Forget the rituals. Rather, reflect me. That's what I want. Do you care about what God cares about, brothers and sisters? Do you love the things that God loves? Is your life a reflection of his heart, his his character? We could ask it like this. Do you practice empty religion or real obedience? Zechariah reminds the audience there in chapter 7 and verse 11 of the fact that their forefathers, uh, they knew what God was after. God's not saying anything new here, but that former generation did not listen. Verse 11, they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They put their fingers in their ears. La, 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 right? You know, when your siblings do that, boys and girls, isn't that the best thing? Don't you just really enjoy that? No, I'm not listening, not listening, not listening. That's how Israel acted towards God. I don't want to hear a word you have to say. And then he says, but it's more than that they stop their ears. He says, it's that my word actually wouldn't penetrate their hearts because their hearts were as hard as diamonds. Isn't that a powerful, powerful um, image there? And that's why they went to exile in the first place they made their hearts verse 12 diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words of the lord the host of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets therefore great anger came and then verse 13 as i called and they would not hear so when they called me i wasn't going to hear them verse 14 i scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known have you ever been out, uh, maybe at the beach, picnic or something like that, on a, a windy day, and you maybe you weren't anticipating the wind, but you've got everything kind of s- settled at the beach, your your um, food's laid out, and then a gust of wind comes by and it just takes everything, right? All the napkins and the plastic cups. And it's just all going, and, and it, you know, the umbrella went flying that direction, this and all that. And it kind of just makes you want to just pack up and leave, right? Instead of running and getting everything. You know, let's just go home. It's t- we have to run all these directions to get everything. No, it's impossible. 
That's what God did to Israel. Like a whirlwind, like this mighty gust of wind sent my people every direction on the map. One would think that they could never be brought back together. Because, why? Because their hearts were as hard as a diamond. Maybe you know well that image. Because maybe that's what your heart is like. Can anything bring about change for you? Maybe you fear an inability to turn away from empty religion and go to active and true obedience because you feel like you have that hard heart as well. Can anything give you the change that you need to prevent you from being eternally scattered by the wind of God's wrath? And the answer is yes, there is something that can change you. But there's only one thing that can change you. Only one thing that can pierce a heart of stone and energize us into real obedience, and that is the promises of God. Or we could put it this way, it's what God does, not what we do. We see that in our text as it turns to chapter 8. Notice how Zechariah's sermon does not end with this kind of ominous warning about Israel's past failures, but instead immediately he moves on to the hope of Israel's future and what God will do for the people. And chapter 8 is so rich in, in the blessings that are described for the future restoration of Israel that there's no way we could uh, properly reflect fully on all of them. Uh, go home, read this chapter ten more times, and each time you'll just be struck by another amazing promise of God. There's this grand promise of the covenant in verse 2, that God will dwell in the midst of uh, the people. The promise in verse 8, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We talked about that earlier this morning, that that's what the covenant is all about, that refrain. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And it's not simply that God's just going to revisit Jerusalem. It's, it's truly he's going to restore Jerusalem. Verse 3. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city once again. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain once again. Right? The names that God's people and places deserve will be given back to them. Verse 13. As you've been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, I'll save you so that you shall be a blessing. Total reversal. And then even physically there are these blessings. The land will produce um, again for them there will be the dew of heaven upon the land I think though perhaps most surprising of all is what would be seen on the streets verse 4 old men and old women shall again sit on the streets of Jerusalem each with staff in hand because of their great age and the streets of the city will be full of boys and girls playing. This seems to be the most unbelievable aspect of what God is uh, promising, because it's one thing to, to repair a broken down temple, but even if that happened, the people were still a diminished people. They were still scattered. Many were still in captivity. The, the population was so depleted that to hear of a day when the, the old and the young alike would be out in the streets and, you know, a grandma and granddad are sitting there on, their, on the chair and they're watching 
boys and girls playing soccer in the streets. The thought is just unimaginable. There's no way this could happen. We know who we are. We know what we've got left, that we will never get to that point again. It seems like an impossibility, a marvel, actually, verse 6. And look how God chastises their unbelief. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it's marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people, should it be marvelous in my sight? In other words, if you think that's an amazing thing, like you could never do it, do you think I couldn't do it? Would it be a marvel to me? Implication? No, of course not. This would be a very simple thing for me to do. But we need to recognize it is true. Human ingenuity can't manufacture this. And we have nations right now in our world today trying to manufacture this. Maybe you've seen the news just in recent weeks. China instituting um, financial incentives to couples that will have more than one child amidst a terrifying population decline. Wonder why, after decades and decades of that ungodly uh, imposition and restriction, the one child policy. Uh, similarly, Tokyo recently, it's amazing, back in um, June, I believe, Tokyo, a, a court in Tokyo, upheld a constitutional ban on same sex marriage, which is something that just doesn't happen anymore. You don't hear about that kind of thing anymore. Who you know, get with the times, who would continue a ban on same-sex marriage? Well, this is how the court defined marriage, and I think it gives you a little hint as to why they banned it. The court defined marriage, quote, as a system established by society to protect a relationship between men and women who bear and raise children. You see, Japan can't afford to give a stamp of approval on unions that won't produce babies and repopulate their dying nation. So both of these countries are examples of people who are facing a very bleak future, past decisions that likely cannot be overturned and are leading to the demise of their way of life. And so, as I said, human ingenuity cannot manufacture a population boon that brings a tiny remnant back to this bustling uh, um, to a bustling and, and lively people group, bringing them back from the brink of extinction. But God could, and that's exactly what he's promising to do. And see, friends, here we find the whole point. This is the whole point of what Zechariah is saying. Yeah, you can't do it, but God can. That's true of, of Israel coming back from, from exile, from obscurity, coming back into to, to prominence and prosperity. Only God can do that. And only God can change your heart and take you from the brink of extinction right there on the brink of hell because of your sin and change your heart so that you abandon your empty religion and you give yourself to real obedience because your heart has been changed and you love this God. Only he can do it. Nobody else. Nobody else. Not you. You cannot change your own nature. You can't change your heart. That diamond hard heart that we all have by nature and can do nothing about, God is the one who takes care of it. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And when you recognize that that's what God 
has done for you, that this is what God will do for you, when you recognize that this is what he is all about, guess what that does? That catapults you into obedience. That's why we said the only thing that can take you away from empty religion and get you to obey in a real true way is to be energized by the promises of God, to see all that he's willing to do for you, all that he wants to do, all that he has done for you. That alone can give you the strength, the determination, the desire to do that which pleases him. It doesn't start in here. It doesn't start with us. It starts outside of us, looking at the promises of God. And when it clicks, when we see it, when we believe it, will want to obey. It's as though there would be no other choice. How could we not obey? That, that, that logic dominates this portion of Zechariah 2. We see it several times where God says, this is what I'm going to do, and now you're going to behave in this way in light of that. So look at verse 13, for example. Chapter 8. You have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, house of Israel, but I'm going to save you, and you, will, you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Translation, rest in the promises of God and get to work. Isn't that kind of a paradoxical? But that's how it works in the gospel, that we rest in God's promises, and from that rest we're strengthened to get to work. Or we see it also in verse, verse uh, 11. No, not verse 11, sorry. Verse 14. As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again now I've purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So he's saying, just as I was determined to judge a previous generation, so I am dead set determined to do good to you. And then what's the result? Verse 16. So this is what you should do. Speak the truth. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil. It's all now in response to what God has done. And there's one other thing that God says he's going to do. He brings back the, the fasting that, that kicked off this whole conversation. Right? Verse 19. Thus says the Lord, the fast of the fourth month and the fifth and the seventh and the tenth shall now be to the house of Judah seasons of joys and gladness and cheerful feasts. He's going to turn fasting into feast, and he says, therefore, love truth and peace. Obey because of my promises. Obey because of my promises. Remember, the people wanted to stop fasting because they had rebuilt the temple. It didn't seem necessary anymore. But that was just their empty religion talking. What will put an end to fasting isn't what people can do. It's what God will do. God says, I will turn it in now into a feast, and now love truth and love peace. So, friends, it's always in response to God's promises that we are, we are enabled, we're energized to real obedience, and thereby we abandon empty, deadly religion. So what promises do you need to be reminded of today to get you to cast your, your deadly doing down, to abandon self-righteousness, uh, and works righteousness, but actually to serve God with a faithful heart, an obedient heart. What promises do you need to remember? Well, for for Israel, this was the promise they were given. It all had to do with the new Jerusalem he was making, the promised land that they would inherit. 
He was making a new place for them. Zechariah speaks of a new Jerusalem. Paul speaks of something better. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. So, in response to the work that God is doing and will continue to do, live a life not of empty religion, but of real heartfelt, spirit-led obedience. Our Father, we ask that you would take the word preached and that you would cause us to believe it, to believe the gospel good news. And in believing, we would show forth our faith with good works, inspire us to authentically adhere to the Christian religion, which means to be empty of ourselves, to acknowledge we have nothing, but we've been filled with the very fullness of God in Christ Jesus. And from that fullness, we now have what we need to step out 